You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. everybody. In the interest of time, we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, it is uh, my great privilege and honor to uh, introduce uh, the Reverend Fleming Rutledge. Uh, I'm going to leave the biography. You can get online and, and find it anywhere. Uh, but uh, indeed, we're more excited that she's come and to share in the ministry of the gospel with us uh, today and over the next several days. And so looking forward to hearing you uh, this morning, Mrs. Rutledge, in class and, uh, and preaching throughout the week. Uh, but before that, uh, let's have a word of prayer. The Lord be with you. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy uh, shown supremely through your Son, Jesus. Uh, We do pray that you would not leave us to ourselves, that you would come now in power and might to speak uh, through your Spirit, uh, through your servant, Fleming. We pray that her words might be your words, and that this day uh, we might behold Jesus in all of his beauty and majesty. In his name we pray. Amen. I was just telling Gil, I haven't seen this many good-looking, well-dressed people in church since the last time I was here, (laughs) which is about 20 years ago. You don't see anything like this in New York. People come to church in whatever they had on at 2 a.m. the previous night, (laughs) or worse. Well, I was a little worried about starting out. I looked at this thing. Last night, I looked over my speech, and I thought, why did I announce the problem of evil as my first speech or a presentation to you all? That seems a little heavy, but you seem to be ready for it. You're all here (laughs) filling up this room. Um, I don't remember how long it's been. I, I have been here about six times, I think, but not for about 20 years. Um... So I expected your standards to have dropped a little bit, but (laughs) obviously they haven't. No, really, this church, this congregation has been quite an inspiration for many decades now, and uh, it's a great, great privilege to be here, and I really mean that. Now, the reason I wanted to start off with this subject is probably partly personal, because the problem of evil has vexed me ever since I was a teenager, and I think it is what absorbs the minds and the thoughts of many thinking people who try to come to terms with Christian faith and the world the way it is, and um, I have a chapter in my big book, The Crucifixion, the chapter is called The Descent into Hell. And I worked on it for years. Um, And of all the chapters in my book, I think it's the one that means the most to me. So that has a lot to do with the choice of the topic. We have one, two, three, four seats here for all those people standing in the back. There are a couple up here. One here, one here. Isn't it funny how people don't like to sit on the first front row? (laughs) 
Good. Welcome to the younger generation on the front row. <laughs> Terrific. All right, here goes. Many people, perhaps Americans in particular, are raised to believe in innocence. The parents or families of origin tend toward optimism and the bright side of things. They're, in, they're fond of all things bright and beautiful. They don't have much experience with all things negative and nihilistic. Or if they do, and we all do, they don't speak of it. In these families, we were taught to keep on the sunny side, always on the sunny side of life. The Bible, however, is emphatically not a sunny-sided book. It is full of plague, pestilence, and famine, battle, murder, and sudden death, as the litany puts it. Here's what Jesus himself told his disciples. I'm looking for a glass of water, uh, if somebody could get me one. Room temperature, please. Not, no ice. <laughs> Bad for the vocal cords. Thank you, sir. Um, here's what Jesus himself told his disciples. When you hear of water, water, I've got water on the brain. <laughs> I have to start over. <clears throat> when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. Take heed to yourselves. Brother will deliver up brother to death, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by everyone for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Take heed. I have told you all things beforehand. The master tells his disciples what they should expect from the world as they go out to preach, to evangelize. Here's something similar from the first epistle of Peter. Be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same experience of suffering is required of your brotherhood throughout the world. And think also of the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or alternatively, deliver us from the evil one. And I'll get back to that. Evil is everywhere present in the world of the Bible. In the New Testament, the devil is a leading character. The devil, of course, is not a man in a red suit with a pitchfork. We all understand that. <laughs> what is he then? We need to know. In any group, you will find some who are sunny-side people. Chances are they grew up in a family where negative thoughts 
and feelings were suppressed. I see this all the time in ministry. One of my closest friends, her father committed suicide. She was never permitted to speak about it. Her entire young life, she was not allowed to speak about her father or what had happened to him. That is a pernicious state of affairs, but it exists in many families in a less dramatic sense, to be sure. But many families suppress negative thoughts and feelings. Other families are willing to confront evil, but often without fully understanding what evil is, and I'm going to get to that too. The natural human tendency is to project evil onto other people and other groups. Today, I'm going to focus not so much on evil people or evil deeds, but on the theological discussion which is called the problem of evil. This arises from the perpetual question, how can there be an all-powerful and all-loving God when there is so much evil in the world? And why doesn't God put a stop to it? This remains the premier problem in biblical interpretation and in theology. Now let me say right at the outset, no one, no one has ever come up with a satisfactory answer to the problem of evil. And you will not get one this morning. A lot of, a lot of philosophers and theologians have tried to come up with an answer to this problem. But none of the attempts, none of the attempts have stood up to scrutiny. I'm going to give away my main point here at the beginning. Well, one of my main points. If you ask me how God can continue to allow so much evil, here's the answer. We don't know. Nobody knows the answer to the problem of evil, not in this life. And yet it is, in a sense, the most important of all theological problems, and we should never lose sight of it. The classic definition of evil is the absence of good. In Latin, that's privatio bona. We learned that in seminary right away. Privatio bona, the absence of good. Now, I never liked that definition because it sounds weak to me, lacking purpose and action. The Bible personifies evil in the figure of Satan, and the figure of Satan embodies purpose and action. Jesus himself refers to this figure in several different ways. Jesus calls him Satan, the devil, Beelzebub, the chief of the demons, and interestingly and importantly, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. 
I see some knowing nods. That's very encouraging. Some biblical studies going on around here. Flannery O'Connell, we all know who Flannery O'Connell is down here, don't we? Flannery O'Connell had a particularly sophisticated understanding of the devil. She depicted him in various disguises in her stories. She wrote this, Our salvation is played out with the devil, a devil who is not simply generalized evil, but an evil intelligence determined on its own supremacy. J.R.R. Tolkien did a very good job of depicting evil as an active agency in The Lord of the Rings. I don't speak so much of the movie. I like to talk about the book. Tolkien and his friend, C.S. Lewis, wrote the best imaginative descriptions of the devil that I have ever read. Actually, Lewis's is even better. Lewis's description of the devil in Paralandra is unexcelled anywhere that I know. In any case, the main idea is to hold on to the idea that there is an evil power loose in the world. This power is independent of human beings. It is a power that has an agency and a project of its own. And this power can only be defeated by another power greater than itself. And that's not you or me. Unaided human beings can make no lasting headway against evil. Wouldn't you think this was obvious by now? But no. We have a right, an example right in front of us. Mark Zuckerberg really believed, apparently, that he was going to make a better world. And look at what happened. The last movie that the greatly beloved actor Philip Seymour Hoffman made before he died of a heroin overdose, speaking of evil, the last movie was A Most Wanted Man. I streamed it again last week. It takes place in the present time. Hoffman plays a German intelligence agent working to identify terrorist organizations. He's the hard-drinking, chain-smoking, disheveled, highly skilled leader of a team of operatives who have been recruiting young Muslims to penetrate the terrorist network. Hoffman's character is decent, but cynical. He wants to do the right thing, but he fully understands the nature of the compromises that he must make. All of this is based on a novel by John le Carre, who, as you know, is famous for exposing moral ambiguity. It's been necessary for Philip Seymour Hoffman's character to join forces with an American diplomatic attache in Berlin, played by Robert, Robin Wright in her best House of Cards villainous mode. She and 
Hoffman's character have a conversation in a tavern. He asks her why she and he do what they do. She says, not without cynicism, to make this a better world. He looks at her with an expression that silently conveys a mixture of incredulity and contempt. At the end of the movie, we learn what kind of supposedly better movie she has made. I said the wrong thing. I said, I meant to say, at the end of the movie, we learned what kind of world, supposedly better world, she has made. I really messed that up. At the end of the movie, we learn that the, mo that the movie, that the, that the world, the world she has made is not precisely a better world. Quite a few thinkers have reflected on the fact that we are indeed unable to make a better world because we cannot get a grip on evil. Andrew Del Banco, a professor at Columbia, wrote a whole book on this subject called The Death of Satan. He is a completely secular unbeliever, and yet he writes this lament. Our culture is now in crisis because evil remains an inescapable experience for all of it, and yet we have lost our symbolic language for describing it. Amazing. Secular, unbelieving writer. We have lost our symbolic language for describing evil. I'm arguing here that Christians do still have that symbolic language for evil and that it is the best and most robust account of evil that there is. I'm just trying to sketch it out here this morning. The horrors of World War II forced many to reach back for a stronger symbolism. Robert Coles of Harvard, for instance, wrote, the 20th century has not treated 18th and 19th century optimism kindly. The devil has, in a sense, returned. Our struggle these days is to find a way of thinking about the radical evil that lives all too comfortably in our communities. Our usual secular pieties don't quite work in the face of our recent dark past. Now, that was written by Robert Coles toward the end of the 20th century. The terror attacks of September 11, 2001, and more recent events have had a similar effect in the 21st century. These phenomena have pushed us beyond the familiar, manageable categories of right and wrong. Now, I've got another secular writer to read from. His name is Lance Morrow, well-known, prize-winning essayist, journalist, wrote for Time magazine for many years. He's written a book called Evil. That's the name of the book, Evil. It's very good. Um, and in this book, Lance Morrow writes very well about the difference between 
evil and mere wrong. He would have trouble, he says, calling the Nazi final solution or the torture murder of a child wrong. And he goes on. A crucial difference between wrong and evil is that people are implicitly in charge of the universe in which rights and wrongs are discussed. People have systems of law to right wrongs. But evil implies a different universe controlled by extra-human forces. Wrong is a human offense that suggests that reparation is possible. Wrong is not mysterious, but evil suggests a mysterious force that may be in business for itself and may exploit human agency as part of a larger cosmic conflict between good and evil, God and Satan. I keep thinking I'm going to write Lance Morrow and ask him how he came up with that. It's an amazing paragraph coming from a presumably non-theological journalist. It precisely describes the symbolic universe of the New Testament. The best way to understand this is to note that there are, in the Bible, three active agencies on the stage. Not two, but three. Most accounts of the Christian life refer to two actors. There's God, and then there's us. The human being is pictured as making a journey to God. A great deal of what's being taught in the Episcopal Church, maybe not here, I don't know, and the other mainline churches very definitely, is based on this idea of the spiritual journey that we are supposed to be making. And yet there is remarkably little of this in the New Testament. The New Testament is not about our journey toward God. It is about what Karl Barth called the journey of the Son of God to the far country. That language is from the parable of the prodigal son who journeyed into a far country. And what does the incarnate Son of God find when he arrives in this far country. He finds that it is not neutral territory. It is occupied by a great power. So in the New Testament story, there are not two actors, but three. God, humanity, and the great enemy. Satan, the devil, the ruler of this world. The Apostle Paul has his own way of identifying this enemy. He calls the enemy the power of sin and death. And a lot of Pauline scholars, including me, although I'm not precisely a scholar, but all of my colleagues and associates are scholars, and they 
have taken to capitalizing the word sin and the word death when speaking about Paul and his theological approach. The powers of sin, capital S, and death, capital D, to identify the fact that they are independent powers over which we have no human control. We fool ourselves. We think we do. Why is there evil in the world? We don't know why, but we do know that, that it is a terrible and malevolent force and that against it, human beings are helpless. The power of sin and death is external to the human being, working on us from outside. So that in the words of one of our Lenten colleagues, colleagues, is it because it's early in the morning or what? <laughs> um, let me start over. The power of sin and death works on us from outside, so that in the words of one of our greatest of all colleagues during the season of Lent, we have no we have no power of ourselves to help ourselves. We are in bondage to sin and death. As in the old Ash Wednesday prayer, we are tied and bound by the chain of our sins. Paul writes in Romans that sin is able to work death in us even through what is good. Romans 7, sin is able to work death in us even through what is good. You know the saying, no good deed goes unpunished. That's a helpful way of understanding what Paul is getting at. Good intentions get twisted. Attempts to help often, get, often turn out badly. Sin is able to work death in us even through what is good. I'm sure all of you are familiar with this. You tried to do the right thing and it turned out wrong. Our children will remind, ourselves, will remind us of that often. My children, anyway. I get the feeling that that little laughter that rippled across the room made it a familiar thought. Now, we have no control over this factor, no good deed goes unpunished in and of ourselves, any more than we can stave off the approach of death when the hour comes. Only God has the power to overcome sin and death. Only God has the power to overcome the evil working of the enemy. This is the message that is foreseen in the great story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. What a great story that is. Many years after Joseph's older brother sold him into slavery in Egypt, he is reunited with them. When they fall on, his knee, on their knees to ask his forgiveness for what they did to him, he says to them, it was not you who sent me here, but God. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good 
to bring it about that many people would be kept alive as they are today. So in the very first book of the Bible, we learn that God is able to overturn the forces of evil and bring good into being out of negation. To speak in New Testament terms, Satan is a great enemy agent, but God is a greater agent for good, infinitely greater. This is striking, since it's the book of Genesis that tells us how evil came to rule over the creation in the first place, or rather, how evil arrived in the second place, a far distant second place. The first place is always God's. In Genesis 1, we read that when God finished his work of creation, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Evil, therefore, is not part of the creation. The Christian tradition has always affirmed that. That's why the definition, the absence of good, is so important in spite of its apparent blandness. Although evil made its appearance in the creation, it possesses no existence or being of its own. Rather, it is a negation or corruption of being. Only God has being, and only God can create being. Evil, therefore, is a great nullity, an ex factor, a parasite on the good. Having said that, we're still faced with the difficulty of describing evil as non-being. It seems to lack force and malignity. I think we would have trouble rallying anyone to mount an offense against non-being. And besides, if evil was not created by God, I'm sure you're already thinking of this, how did the serpent get into the Garden of Eden? Again, I must tell you, we don't know. And the book of Genesis does not tell us. My grandmother read me the story of the creation when I was not yet seven years old. And now, after all these years, it seems to me deeper and wiser and more miraculous than ever. I shouldn't have said the story of the creation specifically. I should have said the story in chapters 2 and 3, the story not only of the creation, but of the fall. In Romans 5, Paul makes the Adam and Eve story, Romans 5, into an extraordinary exposition of Christ's great work. But you don't get the feeling that he's talking about Adam and Eve as historical people. He's talking in mythic terms about a great primordial catastrophe, whatever it was, which admitted evil and godlessness into God's good creation. The story of the disobedience of Adam and Eve has never been fully plumbed. That's part of its surpassing greatness. 
It tells us what we need to know about ourselves, that we are bent, as C.S. Lewis says. We are bent out of shape from our conception because in sin my mother has conceived me. That's from Psalm 51, which I will refer to during the week. Now this saying in Psalm 51, my mother has conceived me in sin, has nothing to do with sex, nothing. It's about the fact that sin is, as W.H. Auden, the great poet, wrote, sin is bred in the bone, or as we would say less poetically, it's in the DNA. The occasion for this presentation right now is the fact that I think most of us realize that in our time we seem to have crossed some sort of boundary into new territory. The Sunnysiders have been dragged willy-nilly out of their safe places. We are beginning to see now clearly, more, more clearly, that no office, school, or church is truly safe. We have seen that Facebook has made us less secure, not more. We have seen that how to make a bomb in the kitchen of your mom is only a few clicks away. Moreover, too many clergy have been arrested for sexually abusing children. Too many men have been caught abusing women. Too many teachers have been caught sexually abusing students. Too many supposedly understand upstanding citizens have downloaded too much child pornography. There is something ugly lurking in human nature. Holy Week begins today. This Thursday, Maundy Thursday evening, Jesus wrestles face to face with the enemy in the Garden of Gethsemane. It is time to put away sentimentality and face up to the terrible things in life. And as Ash Wednesday always reminds us, that means looking first into our own hearts. What we typically do is displace evil onto someone else or some other group. This is what we do by nature. This is what we do from our DNA, so to speak. We displace the evil that lurks within ourselves onto someone else or some other group. But no one is free from the power of sin and death. No one has power in herself to help herself. No one can say to herself, well, I'm not a murderer, so I'm not so bad. The widely admired writer Primo Levi was a survivor of Auschwitz he wrote that the Holocaust showed us, and this is what he says, man, the human species, we, in short, have the potential 
to construct an infinite enormity of pain. And that pain is the only force created from nothing, without cost and without effort. It is enough not to see, not to listen, not to act. The question of torture has come up again. I had hoped that we had turned our back on that problem from the American point of view. Eight years ago, I preached about that in Houston at the at St. Martin's Church. Took a lot of flack for that. I thought, eight years has gone by, I won't have to preach about it again. Of course, that never happens. Here it is again. Just preparing this talk has convinced me, once again, that the Christian account of evil is not like any other. We do not and we cannot know how and why evil has happened and why God lets it continue. But at every point along the way in the biblical story, evil is faced for what it is, taken with the utmost serious, seriousness, identified as the ultimate enemy, not only of God, but especially of humanity, bent on destruction, malevolent, and determined. I wish I had another hour to talk about resistance. Resistance to the power of evil is crucial to Christian identity. That's why it's so important to hear that, that accusation of Primo Levi. It is enough not to see, not to listen, not to hear. That is all that is necessary for evil to take place. On this Palm Sunday, and again on Good Friday, ask yourself this question, which I will be addressing while I'm here. What does it mean that the Son of God died by such a horrific, spectacularly cruel method of public execution? Why was his death by crucifixion, instead of something a little less prolonged and agonizing, the reason is crucifixion in all of its barbarity, its inhumanity, its degradation, its dehumanization, and its shame all the evil in the world came to focus in him on the cross. On the cross, we see Satan unleashed upon the tortured body of the Son of God. Jesus voluntarily laid himself open to it. The power of sin and death had its victory that day. He absorbed it into himself.
And what does the resurrection tell us? You cannot know this if you do not go through Good Friday. The resurrection tells us that God is the victor over sin and death. It tells us that evil is vanquished even now in suffering love and will be vanquished forever and finally in the ultimate triumph of God. I cannot tell you why God delays that day, and neither can anyone else. I can only tell you that in the resistance of evil, I mean, in the, excuse me, I can only tell you that in resisting evil, when Christians resist evil, when we see it, we see living witness to the hope that is in our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who believe in God hold to the biblical promise that someday we will know the answers to all these questions in the kingdom of God. And at that point, it will no longer make any difference because in that day, there will no longer be even a memory of evil. We will have questions and answers later tonight, I hope and expect, but perhaps not now since it's 10 minutes of 11. Thank you. Thank you so very much, Mrs. Rutledge. Again, she will be with us uh, again. Uh, she's with us all week, folks. Uh, I kind of feel like we're in Las Vegas uh, of sorts. Uh, she'll be with us after the 5 o'clock service tonight in the forum, and then, of course, preaching uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Uh, let us go forth in the name of Christ. Thanks be to God. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.